This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The English digital online sales have changed the landscape of mixed Australian thoroughbred sales forever. Now, rather than wait for a mixed sale through the ring, owners, breeders and vendors can offer their product within a matter of days thanks to the twice-monthly English Digital Online Auctions. English now presents an online auction in the middle of each month and another at the end. Since going twice-monthly, the auction has averaged around 150 lots per sale and has exceeded a million dollars per sale with a clearance rate of almost 80%. To enter a horse or register a bid, visit englishdigital.com and follow the prompts or call 9399-7999. Christian Reef is one of several Sydney-based jockeys who don't let the grass grow under their feet. If a worthwhile ride comes up in town, he'll juggle commitments to allow him to stay at home. If the right opportunity isn't forthcoming, he'll be off to Newcastle or Kembla, where he's assured of a number of rides. He relies on his judgment to determine when he should stay in town. And that judgment was proven correct recently when he won a stakes race on a Kari at Randwick on Everest Day. Christian started his career in Brisbane in the mid-1990s and later took up a contract in Macau where he had great success. In 2003, he was persuaded to try his luck in Sydney by Graham Rogerson, who had a big team of horses in work at Randwick. The same personal demons that had plagued Christian during his early years in Queensland came back to haunt him in Sydney and he had to hit rock bottom before he could get his life back on track. Christian Reith's fight back over the last decade is a story of great courage, steely determination, self-belief and the undying support of family and a few special friends. He rides plenty of work, and he'll travel any reasonable distance to try and win a race for his regular supporters. Every time you look at the race results, he seems to have ridden a winner or two somewhere. Just recently, there was a treble at Scone, a double at Kembla, a double at Bathurst, and singles all over the place. He has four coveted Group 1s on his CV from limited opportunities, and a host of stakes races. This podcast presents a very long overdue chat with Christian Reith. Thanks for joining us, Chris. No, my pleasure, John. How are you? Well, Christian, good thanks, mate. With provincial and country prize money as healthy as it is, and with riding fees greatly improved, a hard-working jockey nowadays can eke out a pretty good living. Yeah, uh, of course you can. Obviously, it's long hours um, and the money's deserved, but um, no, it's rewarding. How do you cope with the travelling? Do do you drive yourself to places like Scone or Musselbrook? I do, John, and um, only yesterday I I drove all the way to Orange for one and it was late scratching. So, um, you know, they're one of the perks of the trip, but um, the driving is not a problem. It's just a wasting and driving, which is it, it gets a bit to, um, you know, taxing. 
Yeah, of course it does. Now, I didn't realise you'd made the trip to Orange. Obviously, that one was in the first, was it, or a very early race? Uh, it was in a later day. It was in a later race, mm-hmm. um, but um, it, it can be a bit of a handful of a horse. And I got there. They tried to settle it up. It went went off in the stalls, and you know, unfortunately, the poor horse it it, it bumped its head. And mm-hmm. you know, you, you got to look after the horses first. And mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't suitable to the race. Yeah. Managers of travelling jockeys do a terrific job to coordinate rides for their clients and Sean Flaherty does a great job on your behalf. Yeah, he does, John. Um look he you know, he's on the ball, he he's precise about things and um, you know, that that that's what you need in especially in Sydney, it's it, it's cutthroat business and um, you know, managers have to be there for you and Chase those rides, and he does a great job. Mm. Let's take the case of this horse, Akari, who won a stakes race at Randwick on Everest Day. Now, you obviously told Sean that you wanted to ride at Randwick, and then he would have to alert your usual clients at the provincials of your unavailability. He's really got to juggle things, hasn't he? He does, but um, obviously my my brother-in-law, Brad Whittup, had a lot to do with that. You know, he, he, he urged me to ride this horse and um, I've been riding her work and whatnot. Mm. And I said, well, she's definitely riding it as long as she can relax. And, mm. you know, it's been as long – it was a long process trying to get her to do that and, you know, the rewards paid off that day. Mm, certainly did. That's the day you'd go home feeling smugly satisfied with yourself. Yeah, and not get abused by my brother-in-law. So uh, <laughs> it was a good day. <laughs> You've been here for so long now that people tend to forget you're a Queenslander. And like so many young blokes, you developed a liking for the theatre of racing by watching the Melbourne Cup every year with your mum. You just fell in love with the spectacle. I, I, I did, and um, I never rode a horse till I was 15. Um, thanks to my mum that she, um, I, I, I asked her that I'd love to do something like this and um, she got the connections and made the phone calls and now I am where I am. Just trying to look at your background, you had an uncle, Joe, who once trained quarter horses at Toowoomba and that appears to be the only connection in the family. Yeah, it is. And um, he's a bit of a wild old boy, um, Uncle <laughs> Joe. And um, he actually lives in, lives in Sydney now, so... Um, Look, I, I like I said, I, I never had anything to really do with horses and, mm. until I become an apprentice. And I used to, um, when I was fourteen, I, I every second, every every second uh, weekend, I'd mm. I'd go to um, now my father-in-law's Fred Thomas's place and mm. learn how to ride, and um, it started from there. And I got hooked and loved it. Mm. You went to the Cavendish Road Public School in Brisbane where your very favourite subject was football, but you were simply too small to aspire to a career with the Broncos. Yeah, well, um, look, I've played football all my life and um, it got to a stage where I was getting to under-13s and under-14s. The boys would be coming out and they'd have moustaches and beards and they were getting pretty pretty big to try to tackle and Mm. I was only... I was only thirty-eight kilos, so um, <laughs> I was uh, I was getting hurt quite a lot. But 
you know, I, I love football and always have. And mm. I won four premierships while I was playing football and mm. um, I had to change that up because I was just too small for it. Mm. I decided to take up racing and I never looked back. You'd have been the Alfie Langer of the school team, wouldn't you? Half back. Yeah, well, well I, I was, I'm good friends with Alfie and um, he actually gave me a technique how to tackle him and, um, you know, that that's the only way I could ta- tackle him is let him kind of go past me, grab him and mm. ankle tap him down. And, um, but, look, I, I love football, still love it. Mm. Um, me and the boys get together now and then, Tom and Sean and all that, and we have a game and it, it, it's great. Um, mm. But, look, racing is my passion mm. um, and that's where I go from now. Just before we leave school days, Christian, I was very interested to learn you had an interest in the arts. You actually enjoyed painting, and do you realise had you pursued this passion, you may well have been another Rembrandt? Oh, I wouldn't say that, John, but <laughs> um, I I was starting to be a commercial artist, um, and um, that's the only straight ace that I used to get is in art and whatnot. And <laughs> the only thing I... The only thing that I um, kind of regret now is I, I, I didn't pursue still drawing and painting and stuff mm. like that, and it kind of it kind of wears off and you don't have the same skills. But mm. um, my daughter's very good at it, and, um, yeah. so, so it kind of rubs off. Mm. You know, it's the kind of thing you could go back to uh, when you're in your post-racing days, when you hang up the silks and saddles. Yeah, maybe, um, but you know, look, that's not that's not in the back of my mind at the moment. I'm still enjoying racing and still going strong, and I'll, I'll keep doing it as long as I can. Yep. Well, when your mother realised you were seriously interested in racing, she got in touch with a bloke called Graham Island. Now, Graham had been himself a successful jockey before moving on to become a steward. Mum must have known Graham. Did she somewhere down the line? Um, no, he's he, 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 actually Mel Shoemaker got uh, Mum onto Graham Island, and mm-hmm. Graham Island, I must say, is one of the most kind, gentle persons I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, he was my idol. He was my mentor, and um, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. And mm-hmm. I'm still well. I'm still well connected with his family. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. You did work experience with a man you mentioned a minute or two back in Fred Thomas, who is currently your father-in-law, and you'd go to Fred's stables every weekend. Yeah, every second weekend when I was 14, I was still at school. Um, I'd do that, go there and do work experience, um, just learn about the horses and whatnot, and, um, it, it was a good grounding. Um, yeah. Obviously, I was worked hard and, um, you know, things were hard, but he, he taught he taught me to be tough. So, mm. you know, if it wasn't for Fred, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be as tough and as reliable as I am. Yeah. Well, you left school at 15 and uh, naturally enough, you became apprentice to Fred Thomas. And there's a story, Christian, about your very first fast gallop. It actually wasn't meant to be a fast gallop, but it turned out that way. What happened? 
Oh, uh, you're talking about Alex down the road? Yes, yes, I am. Well, it was actually it was actually when I was 14. I was just learning how to ride, and um, mm. we used to back then we used to walk the horses around the road, ride them. Um, I was learning how to ride, so you know she she was pretty quiet, and so one afternoon I was walking her around the road. A car come up behind her, hit the skids, beat the horn. She bolted with me. <laughs> Obviously, I've, I'd only been riding for a few weeks, and mm-hmm. we went galloping down the road. And at the end of the road, there's a T in the section, but we didn't quite get around the corner. And we um, we crashed into a parked car, and mm-hmm. I ended up through the windscreen and everything like that. But didn't have a scratch on me. The horse didn't have a scratch on us, but the car was pretty totaled. <laughs> now, Christian, that could have finished you in one foul swoop, but it didn't. No. It, you know, there's no there's no better feeling than being on the back of the thoroughbred when it's going flat chat. Mm. But it can be scary where you're doing it, but mm. um, on the racetrack, it's it, it's rewarding. There was a rule in place back then that stipulated apprentices who were riding for their tickets couldn't ride two-year-olds. Now there was one particular two-year-old, a very difficult one, with which you had a real rapport. And stewards made special dispensation for you to ride this filly in a barrier trial. Her name was Asamore Princess, and you were telling me she could be a nasty little thing. Yeah, it's the only horse that I, I, I could handle. Um, no one else could go in a box. No one else could ride her. Um, she was a chestnut filly, big bald face, mm-hmm. two white eyes. Um, I could walk between the legs. I could. I could do anything with her, she'd kick and bite everyone else. Mm. Um, she, she'd been barred from savaging other horses in races and stuff like that, but it's the only horse I could get along with, and um, she was my first ride in the race too. So yeah, um, she was difficult, but um, we seemed to have a connection. Mm. Well, that first race ride happened on the 13th of August 1994 on the Gold Coast, and you ran second. Did you ever look like winning? Yeah, I, I gave a good ride too, uh, John. <laughs> of course. Yeah, barrier, yeah. barrier six and box seated her and uh, got the split at the top of the straight, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't believe it. Oh, Beaver Schofield, he was the, he was the king of the coast and yeah. he, he, he just beat me. But um, look, it was a great experience and I was only light back then. I was only like 38 kilos and, had a big stone saddle on it, and she behaved herself, and it was it, it was great. My whole family was there, and mm. it was it was quite emotional. Well, it was only a few days later you rode your first winner at Bow Desert. It was a horse called Sir Ive, trained by Terry Hoare, and I think you led all the way. Yeah, um, yeah, it was, and it was great. Um, Terry and Bob, they, they were great supporters of me, and. Um, they actually they actually gave me a watch with an engraving on the back of my first winner and all that. It was it was so good. I think my mum still got it. Mm. Um, but look, it didn't take long. Uh, I think it was my second meeting, and I read my first winner. Mm. Now Terry Hoare, Christian, just looking back, was his nickname Nipper? Yeah, it was. All right. Well, I got and the right I, bloke then. He he started his training career at Warwick Farm. And you're probably aware he'd been a very good amateur jockey 
And on one occasion, I'm sure of this, he he won the famous Corinthian Handicap at Randwick. It was a a once-a-year event for amateur riders and it was run on the bank holiday meeting at Randwick. I'm sure Terry Hoare rode the winner one year. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, he was a great trainer too. And funny thing was, it, the way I got the ride is he used to be at the track at quarter to three mm. in the mornings. Goodness me. And um, obviously I was there too because I used to have to ride 19 to 20 horses a morning. Mm. So I used to get there early and ride one for him and uh, the ride come along and we, we, we bonded with a great relationship. and. I rode for him for several years. It took you just over one year to win your first city race. It was on a horse called Tan Rose's Boy at Doombin for your boss, Fred Thomas, and I'll bet it seems like yesterday. It does. It was the old Doombin track too. Mm. Um, it was before they'd, they'd done – you're making me feel old now. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was the old Doombin track and um, it was for great – clients too um daryl banks who you know he supported me all the way through my career and um you know he was a lovely man and it was great to write a win for him fred thomas did you another very big favor his daughter bettina became your wife and the mother of your very special 12 year old daughter scarlet yeah well i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her um and obviously Scarlett, they've been my rock through my hard times and um, they're, they're the only reason why, you know, I need to straighten my life out and get it back on track and, you know, we, we, we haven't looked back since then. Christian, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast back in a jiffy. A brilliant win by Dame Gazelle in the $1 million golden gift brought down the curtain on the metropolitan phase of the Everest Carnival. But there's more to come. Saturday, November the 16th, all roads will lead to the famous Broadmeadow track at Newcastle for The Hunter, a $1 million race for three-year-olds and upwards over 1,300 metres. A week after that, the gong will capture the spotlight, a $1 million event for three-year-olds and upwards over the 1,600 metres on the roomy Kembla Grange track. The Newcastle Jockey Club and the Illawarra Turf Club are pulling out all stops to make their inaugural million-dollar meetings special occasions. The Everest Spring Carnival comes to a spectacular ending with the Hunter and the Gong, two new races to be run on two wonderful provincial racetracks. One prominent Brisbane trainer to give you terrific support in those early years was Rob Heathcote. He was always there for you, wasn't he, in good times and bad? Yeah, well, I was there for him too. Uh, mm. me, me and Rob were, were great mates. Uh, um, I was there when he first started and he was a foreman and he start, took up his trainer's licence and we got a love-hate relationship, but we're great <laughs> mates, and um, you know we had great success together. And you know, I, I got nothing but praise for him. Where he, where he come from, and what he's done now mm. is is astonishing. Now you were barely past mid-teens when you first realised that you had a health problem. 
Now, you went along to a GP who acted very swiftly. Um, yeah, obviously, um, you know, there was there was a few issues I had and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I went, I went to my local GP, which Graham, um, Graham Darcy was my GP and he was a very, very um, well-known doctor and I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and that was that was the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and ever since then, you know, it's, it, obviously it's a battle, but um, we get through each day and, you know, we have our ups and downs, but, um, you know, it's it's a disease and I think, I think back then people really didn't class it as as a disease. They just they just thought, you know, there's something wrong with you and you gotta snap out of it and mm. these days I think it's more recognized what what it really is. Mm-hmm. Now your specialist back then linked that depression to a nasty race fall you'd had in the Caloundra Guineas. You crashed heavily in the last hundred meters or so. And so did Brian York. He was in the spill too. Yeah, well, his horse snapped both, uh, broke both front legs, and mm. he come down in front of me. And unfortunately, I had nowhere to go. And um, they said they said head injuries, which I had a bad one. I I come back in the jockey's room. I was fine, and I collapsed. Mm. Um, they said I had a severe concussion. I woke up two days later and. Um, my specialist actually said, you know, heavy heavy head injuries can bring it on. Really, but um, you know, that's just that's just part of the game, and mm. I, you know, it's it's hard to deal with some days, but um, you know, we move on. It wasn't long after that that you started to have a drink. Now it started out harmlessly enough with friends. But before you knew it, you were drinking way too much. What was your drink of choice back then? Uh, um, anything, really. Um, mm. But, you know, the drink then it turns to drugs and, you know, it becomes a bad, bad um, cycle and mm. gets out of control and takes control of your life and you and your lifestyle and your family and everything like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you don't see the effects, but everyone else does. And, you know, it, it's a vicious demon. Mm-hmm. Well, you became a loner. You didn't want to mix with people. You couldn't get out of bed. And before long, you were letting people down by being constantly absent from track work. Yeah, well, you know, obviously, when you're – when you're out all night and all that, you you know you're not turning up the track. You're not you're not doing your work. Um, but it gets to a stage where my wife was pregnant, and um, you know things were, things were happening, and I had to straighten my life out. You got a short term contract to ride in Macau, and this is where another demon started to make an unwelcome incursion into your life. How did you get started on drugs? Um, I think it's pro- the person that I am. Um, you know, I'm outgoing and I, I, I'm easily led astray, but um, I, I don't blame anyone for my drug problem. Um, obviously, it was my own choice. And, 
it became quite quite a problem when um, it was an everyday habit uh, for quite a while, and it it it, it took its toll. What were you using, Christian? Uh, I was a cocaine user, yeah. uh, quite heavily. Um, people buy uh, people buy grams and that. I was buying ounces. Mm. Uh, it was it was probably about a ten thousand dollar a week habit. Um, Goodness me! Um, quite a heavy user, mm. and um, it took control of my life. Mm. You know, your natural talent carried you such a long way in that difficult period. Despite your drug and alcohol habits, and this is quite astounding, you rode 47 winners in three months. You must wonder how when you look back. Um, yeah, well, but I was um, I was very fortunate when I got there. I was riding for actually a Brisbane trainer who moved out of there, Barry Baldwin. Mm. Uh, gave me great support. Wrote for Gary Moore, um, John Didham, mm. all of them. Um, you know, we had great success. It was I actually broke Paddy Payne's record. They said he rode he rode something like forty two winners in three months. I was able to go over there and ride forty seven, mm. and um, you know, I enjoyed my time over there. I loved being over there, um, and it was a great experience. It was an offer from Graham Rogerson that got you back to Australia. How big was his team at that time? I think Graham Rogerson was one of the biggest trainers in Sydney, uh, mm. apart from Gabe Waterhouse back then. Mm. Um, he had loads of numbers. He, he was probably one of the first trainers that started to get the big numbers. Mm. Um, it was great to ride for him. He was, he, he was a man of intelligence. He could just pick his brain and... You know, you could learn so much from him. And um, there's actually my brother-in-law who was working for him at the time said, you should come down and ride for this guy. And I got in contact with him and, you know, we went from there. Mm. Well, you were still drinking and still using cocaine during that time with Rogerson, but still the winners flowed. And a couple of good races you won, I recall. You won a summer cup on a horse called Stadium and an expressway stakes on, and this is an interesting one, Sportsman for Greg Hickman in the Pirata Callus. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was actually, Sportsman was actually owned by Clinton Payne too, mm-hmm. uh, the racing man, and um, he, was a, he was a great old horse. He was on the first Kingston track that we had, Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember we come down the outside fence, scraping the outside rail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only place you could win back then. Mm-hmm. And, um, no, it was a great thrill. Well, finally it all caught up and you had a complete nervous breakdown. Your wife, Bettina, carted you off to do something about it. What happened next? Yeah, well, you know, you come to that stage, John, um, you know, things things were getting out of control. Um, and back then, no one, no one really wanted to know about depression, anxiety, drug problems, alcohol problems. Um, so it led to me making the decision, me and my wife, Bettina, 
we need to do something about it. And um, we we decided for me to check myself into a detox centre. Yep. And from there, we went to a rehab centre. Right. Now, I think you were telling me once that you were prescribed the wrong treatment at one stage. Um, yeah. Um, obviously, they put me on the wrong medication. Mm. Probably made me worse. Um, but look, every, everyone's different. Um, obviously, mine, mine's more anxiety that mm. I have. And I've lived with it all my life. Mm. And certain medications help it and certain medications don't help it. So um, it's quite a balance, balancing act. But I find these days medication I'm on, uh, treatment that I do is, you know, it helps me tenfold. Mm. Well, after three months of rehabilitation, you decided to take a complete break from racing. You went back to Brisbane. And then you you literally waited for the desire to come back, didn't you? You just waited for the desire to be a jockey again to return. Is that what happened? Yeah, it was, John. Look, you know, like you said, I you know I had a complete breakdown. I spent months in rehab. Um, I was on loads of medication, um, and. It's um, I, I I think I just needed to have that break from yeah. racing, mm. and you know, like you said, get that desire back, and you know, it it come back pretty quickly. Mm. Um, once you're in racing, it, it it's hard to get out of your blood. And, mm. Um, look, I think I, I think I think taking that break and getting myself better, I think was the best thing I ever done. Rob Heathcote and Kelly Sweeter were two Brisbane trainers who helped you to get back on track. Yeah, they were. Um, look, obviously, it, w- it was quite hard back then. Um, but also, like, when I went through drug and alcohol rehabilitation, I I come out of there after two months. I relapsed again. I ended up at a place called Banks House, which is a mental uh like a mental hospital mm. um and i was in there for three months um so it took it, it took a long time to get back um but i i think i i myself needed to go through that i needed the wake-up call um uh, i had a young daughter which is my life and you know it really straightened me out and Went back to Brisbane. I, I think I just needed to get out of Sydney. And I needed to get out of the hustle and bustle and the, you know, the all the triggers that were down here for me, mm. um, and we were able to stabilise our life um, and my relationship with my wife, mm. get our family back together. And um, you know, it was a long, hard road. But look, if it wasn't for Bettina and my daughter, I probably wouldn't be here today. You came back to Sydney when you felt emotionally strong and that was midway through the 2009-2010 season. You rode 44 winners uh, by season's end but then the following season you rode 120 winners in the state, 40 of them in town. 
Christian Reith was back. Yeah, look, um, it took a lot of work, uh, a lot of dedication, it, which was good for me. It, it, it kept kept my head in the right place. A lot of travelling, um, but look, Sydney's rewarding. Uh, you're willing to work, get those connections, but it, it, it's tough and gruelling at the same time. Um, there's no harder place in Australia, in the world than Sydney. Um, I think it's the most competitive it's ever been at the moment and back then, and it's rewarding when you can succeed. Another 605 winners have followed since the season we were talking about when you won 120. Uh, last season, you won 84 races. You haven't let up for almost a decade. Your commitment hasn't wavered. No, it hasn't, John. Look, I, I love what I do. And, you know, you, you couldn't be a jockey if you didn't love what you do. I love the animal. I love riding them. It, it's a special thing. And, you know, all the other stuff that goes with it, all the hard times, all the battles and the arguments and, the, you know, the, all the other stuff, it, once you get on that horse's back, it it all goes away and that's what I love about it. Let's look at your four Group 1s. The first of them was the 2012 Coolmore Stud Stakes at your very first ride down the straight six at Flemington on a mare called Nikita, a brilliant mare trained by John Thompson for Patnak Farm and you say to this day she's the best horse you've been on. Yeah, I, I I, don't think I'd ever be on a horse like her again. Um, her, her turn of foot was, it was unbelievable. Um, she, she had a lot of problems, and I, John just did a fantastic job trying to manage her. Um, she won four out of her five starts. Mm. Should have been unbeaten. Probably shouldn't have went to the Golden Rose. Um, she ran fourth in that. And her, she was, she was hard to ride. She was quite, quite strong, and you had to, you know, get along with her. But she was a brilliant filly. She didn't run the trip in the Golden Rose. She, yeah, she she wasn't she wasn't running for that. She was a sprint filly. Um, she needed speed. I drew I drew wide, but I was able to give her. A good, I got suspended in it too. I remember I I, I knocked. Um, pump her down uh, to get into the one one split, but um, she was she was she was something else. She, if she was sound, she would have been a champion. Mm, yeah, I know you you had a huge rap on her. Two thousand and thirteen, Karen McAvoy was under suspension during the spring carnival, and you got to fill in for Karen on a cult call complacence in the Group One Spring Champion Stakes. Yeah, well. Funny thing about that, it, um, a lot of the boys were in Melbourne then. It, it was like the last group one of the Sydney season, and there was the Melbourne Melbourne kicking off. And um, Mr. Snowden was kind enough to give me the opportunity to ride him, and gave him the perfect ride, box seat, peeled off one horse's back, and we got we got the money, and uh, it was a great day. Two thousand and sixteen. And you got yourself on that marvellous old horse, Lure Remain, for 
for the Chris Lee stable. And up you bobbed in the Group 1 Randwick Guineas. Hasn't he been a marvellous horse? He has. And, you know, we turned the tables on Huey. Start before, Huey held me in a pocket. I couldn't get out and he was probably unlucky. And then when it came to the grand final, I was able to hold Huey in a pocket and he couldn't get out. So, <laughs> uh, no, he amazing horse. He tough as nails, always has been. He's only got stronger the older he's got. Mm. I think you rode him in a Cameron handicap too at Newcastle. Did you run second? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, like I said, he, when I was riding him, he wasn't quite furnished. Uh, but look, he hasn't looked back since, has he? He's um, four-time Group 1 winner. Um, Marvellous old horse. Ron Quinton paid you a great compliment in the autumn of this year when he put you on his lovely mare Dixie Blossoms in the Coolmore Classic. When did you think you had that race won? At acceptances. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You'd been riding a work, had you? Oh, look, I, I, I've, I've rode Dixie a lot, a lot, like all that preparation and, mm. look, she was just a marvellous mare. Um, Ron just managed her so well, just had her peaking at the right time and, we were always confident going into that race and, you know, when she drew well and we were able to get the right run on her, it was just a matter of about just giving her clean air when we needed to and she was going to do the rest. And she never lets you down. She always gives you 100% and she did that on that day. Your 12-year-old daughter, Scarlett, is the apple of your eye and I imagine she's got you firmly wrapped around her little finger. Yeah, and my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, look, no, we're me and Bettina are very fortunate that we've got a great kid. You know, she's she's got a good head on her shoulder. Um, she works hard. She she's a dancer. Uh, mm. She does that. She she trains five six times a week for many hours. Mm. Sometimes she doesn't get home till ten o'clock at night. That's from school mm. and, you know, dancing. She goes straight, straight from school to dancing. And Look, we're, we're proud as punch as her and I think that's the greatest accomplishment I've ever done in my life and, mm. you know, I'm quite proud of it. And she excels in several different categories of dance too, doesn't she? Tap, jazz, ballet, the works. Yeah, she does. And, you know, she's won awards for it. She's won competitions and, I asked her actually the other day, I said, oh, so do you want to get into performance and like arts and stuff like that? And she goes, no, I just like dancing with my friends. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an expensive hobby for her, but uh, mm. <laughs> as long as she enjoys it and her dance friends are her best friends and, you know, if she's happy, I'm happy. Oh, absolutely. You've summed it up. You know, with the number of race meetings and barrier trials that you've got to get to and the endless travelling, it's almost impossible for you to get to the track on a regular basis. But I know you like to get to Hawkesbury one or two mornings a week to give your brother-in-law, Brad Widdup, a hand. Yeah, well, you know, if I don't turn up, I get abused. So, uh, <laughs> no, no. Look, it, it's, it's astonishing what Brad's achieved and um, I'm so proud of him. He, um, you know, he's come through a good grounding. Obviously, 
he was he's worked for the likes of Rogerson, Moses, Snowden's, O'Shea's. Um, very good trainer. Good head, good good horse knowledge about horses, and you know I, I enjoy going out there and riding for him. And, um, you know, it, it's a great setup. Horses are like they're in a resort out there, mm. and um, great staff, great great everything out there, and no, it's enjoyable. Your father-in-law and your former boss, Fred Thomas, now lives in Sydney and he likes nothing more than giving Brad Widdup a hand. In fact, you tell me he's the official race day float driver. Yeah, and you know what? He's 70 years old now and it, it, it gives him something to do, John. Um, mm. You know, you sit around, get old and all that, you go nowhere, but Fred, Fred loves getting up early in the morning, getting out to the track being with the horses and you know people don't understand like they have all these protests and all that you know racing's bad for animals and that but they they want to realize how much we love the animal or else we wouldn't be getting up at three o'clock in the morning and Mm. you know getting out there racing out there to be with them you know your story should be an inspiration to any young person who's had to face similar obstacles you've proven that no mountain is impossible to climb. Yeah, well, you know, we all have our demons. Um, back when I had to go through it, there was no help. Everyone kind of turned a blind eye to it. Um, obviously, I had to seek my own help. But I find my story and what I had to go through, and I've been honest about it, I think that's helped a lot of people now. They're, they're willing to help younger people with, with, you know, problems and issues and all that, um, you know, positive swabs now um, is a mandatory nine months. But if you do rehabilitation, they cut it back, which is a great incentive. Mm. Um, but, look, I think all you have to do is be honest to yourself. Everyone, Everyone has dark days. Everyone has problems. But, you know, you just seek help and hopefully my story's helped a lot of people. I think it's definitely helped racing because they're willing to accept it now. Um, so, look, I I know it was a bad thing at the time, but I think it's been a positive thing for racing. You're a very young and a very fit 42. You're very comfortable at a riding weight of 54 kilos. All you've got to do is keep working as hard as you have over the last 10 years, and your talent will take care of the rest, Christian Reith. It's been a delight having you on the podcast. And it's been a delight talking to you again, John. Um, It's always been a pleasure, and you're an inspiration to racing too, so um, thank you very much. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.